The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. All right, so obviously this morning we get to tackle one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. It's difficult for a lot of reasons. It's difficult for scholars. Uh, There's nobody for whom this passage isn't difficult. It's difficult, first of all, because there's cultural questions that are hard to answer. We don't know with 100% accuracy what was happening culturally. There's also some linguistic questions that are tough. So some of the phrases we don't know for 100% uh, what's going on there. I'm gonna give you my best effort at it, okay? If you disagree with me on some of it, I still love you, okay? And I hope you'll still love me. Um, but let's be honest, right? At first glance, this, this passage seems to have at least two major problems. Number one, it seems to be nearly incomprehensible, as in you read it and you're like, I have no idea what's happening here. We had head coverings, shaved heads, and folks, it's all because of the angels. <laughs> right? And how many of you are like, eh? <laughs> okay. Um, second and worst, it really seems to be misogynist. It seems to be anti-women, devaluing them, subjugating them. We actually had the phrase, woman was made for man. I know that for many of you women, that is your life verse, right? You've, that was a joke. Uh, okay? So what do we do with this passage, right? That's what, we're, that's what we're sitting here thinking. What do we do with this? I want to start with a couple things that we can't do with it. A couple things we can't do. Number one, we can't just hide it. Can't just hide it. Uh, Christianity is built on the belief that the Bible is God's inspired word. If you lose that, if you lose the reality that the Bible is the inspired word of God, there is no Christianity, period. And Christianity is based on the belief that the entire Bible is the inspired word of God, the whole thing. And we have to believe that because the Bible claims it. The entire Bible is the inspired word of God. So for us to have any integrity as Christians We know, right, even though maybe we don't see it at first, we know that this passage is God's word for our lives, and it's good for us. We know that. Now, sometimes we haven't figured out how that's true yet, but we know it, and we can't hide it. If I, if I, you know, one reason we preach through books, at least a lot of the time, some of the time, is because... It forces us to do something, right? I'll just tell you the honest truth. If I was coming up with a, uh, a sermon series, I don't think I'm ever going to pick this passage. I, I, would ne- I don't think I would ever pick it. The only way I would get to this passage is if we're going through Corinthians because we think the entire letter of Corinthians is God's word for us. And then lo and behold, here's this passage And so our integrity gets tested. Our thinking gets tested. How do we handle this claim that I think many or most of us would say as Christians? Yeah, the entire Bible is God's word. And then we read this and we kind of want to be like, except this part. (laughs) We can't do that. We can't hide it. Second thing we can't do, we can't throw it out based on culture. This is like everybody's favorite thing to do. Cut it out based on culture. So we have, you know, every culture has its own sensibilities, And every culture, in some way, lines up with some things in the Bible and says, oh, yeah, that's great. And every culture, in some ways, lines up with some things in the Bible and says, this is horrid. And so throughout history, a benefit of a little church history is you see that over time, every single thing the Bible says has been culturally insensitive to someone somewhere. 
So for instance, Thomas Jefferson was a student of the Enlightenment. You know what he did with his New Testament? His Gospels, he made his own copy of the Gospels and he cut out every part where Jesus did a miracle. Because he didn't believe in supernatural miracles. It was his cultural view didn't line up with the Bible in that way, so he cut it out and said, well, my culture, now we know better. And throughout parts of Scripture, listen, we can't do that, and you realize that's self-refuting in the end, right? Because if you say, my culture tells me what's best in the Bible, then guess what you have to let other people from other cultures do? Their culture tells them what's best in the Bible. What will you have left in the Bible? Nothing. Nothing. So we can't throw things out based on culture. What we do is we study it carefully, we study it humbly, we let the Bible speak to the Bible, and we trust that if we do this correctly, we'll find something beautiful for our good, something beautiful for our good, and that's what I think is in here, and I think you'll find, if I can do my job right, it's incredibly relevant to our lives today. So I wanna follow four steps with you. Hopefully this will be helpful. Number one, I wanna remember the difference between principle and practice in the Bible. Not everything that's descriptive in the Bible, in other words, the Bible tells you somebody did it, is prescriptive for our lives. You see the difference? Just because it happened doesn't mean everybody's supposed to do it all the time. So many times, you have to, you, you have to this, will, this will lead to the second thing, you have to find the principle that stands above culture, because the Bible stands above culture. It's true for all time and all places. But you have to find the principle, the truth that stands above culture. Many of those principles will be practiced different ways within different cultures. So we have to be able to see the difference there. And as we work on that, we'll find those principles, hopefully. And then we'll try to think how we can apply the principles we find. Because obviously, look around. I don't see too many head coverings. Occasionally, we'll find a baseball hat in here or something. That's great, okay? But as you, you're getting already, it doesn't mean in this room what it meant a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, first century Corinth. It doesn't mean the same thing anymore. So that practice isn't, isn't, isn't repeatable or appropriate, but there's a principle in it that we want to find. That's what we're trying to do, Okay. So step one, just to help us, I, wanna, I want us to understand the difference, between, the difference between the truth that stands over time and culture and the way it's experienced within a time and culture. And so we'll start with this, two of our favorite verses here at Fountain of Life. 1 Thessalonians 5.26. So what are you supposed to do? Let's read it together. This is God's word. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Okay? So, fellas, I'd like you to stand up, pucker up. We want to be obedient. You're like, no, okay, no. First Peter 5, 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. So if we're gonna really obey scripture, right, when we show up, we will be smooching each other, all of us, and you laugh because ha, 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 but what are you doing already? You do it automatically. It's not a struggle for you. You didn't read it and go, oh my gosh, we've been disobeying the Bible. I haven't been kissing everyone. You skated right through this easy peasy because you did something in your mind. You said, well, of course, I know enough about other cultures. Some cultures, like they do the, they do the double kiss, right? Europe, uh, Near Eastern, they still do it. It's, it's, that's not what we do. What do we do? Uh, hug each other, pat each other on the back, shake a hand, punch each We know what to do. It's our culture. 
And so the principle here that's for, true for every Christian all the time everywhere is what? Greet one another like you like one another because you're brothers and sisters in Christ. Be happy to see each other because we're supposed to be precious to one another. So that's, a, that's the principle. Do you see? Okay, so that's the first step. That's important for this passage, right? We got to find the principle and think about how to play it out in our culture. Another thing I want to mention is, uh, I heard a pastor say this, it's just a helpful little hermeneutical thing. Just rem- hermeneutics are how you imply the Bible, how you uh, um, interpret the Bible for your life. Hermeneutics, how do you interpret the Bible? And this really helps. He said, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. Okay? The plain things, you're going to see something in a passage, you're going to be like, I don't know what he's after in all of this, but I know he's after at least this. That's plain. Well, that's probably the main thing. That's the main thing. We try to do this in the big picture all the time of Fountain of Life. What's the main thing for us? It's Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, okay? So if we had a survey on what you believe about the end times, some of you might say, I think there's a rapture and then a millennium in Jerusalem. And others you might say, oh, I think I'm all millennial. I think we're in a symbolic church age and then Jesus will come back. And then maybe one or two of you might say, I'm post-millennial, it's all gonna get like heaven, and then Jesus will come back. Um, Guess what? Whatever millennial you are, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God and he's coming back, you're you're welcome here. Okay, I've got my opinions on that. I could tell you why I'm all millennial, if you wanna talk about it. And maybe one day we'll get to a passage there, and that's that's the way I'll preach it. I'll try to be nice to the other views. But it's not the main thing. The main thing is Jesus and who he is and what he's done. It's the main thing for our church. We want to find the main thing in this, passion, in this passage, and that'll be the plain thing. And I think I can say this. Number one, it's plain. There are some cultural things in this passage we honestly aren't sure about. Can I get an amen? Okay. And, you know, I, I'm no Greek or Corinthian scholar. I think I read five or six commentaries even the commentaries, the super smart people who know more than I do, they don't agree on everything in here. So that tells you, like, chill out a little bit, okay? So let's just admit, let's humble ourselves. There are some cultural things that have been lost we don't understand. But I think we can agree that this is happening, okay? Again, a little background. We're in First Corinthians. How's that church doing? It's crazy town, right? They're doing all sorts of things horribly wrong. We've seen that. And we remember their situation's far different than ours. We have, we're missing a lot of people today, and we're already a small church. Their small church would be even smaller of a small church. Okay, and so their scenario is kind of sometimes more like a bigger Bible study. They're meeting together in somebody's home. Everybody's sharing something. They're all pr- they're praying. They're talking. Uh, and, and so these kind of things are happening. In the passage, by the way, who's praying and sharing scripture with one another as they meet? Was it the men or the women? Trick question. Yes, we saw that, right? We saw that. So he's not saying, hey, ladies, don't participate in worship or don't share God's word with one another or don't pray. We already know he's not saying that. But the women here in Corinth, we're going back there, they were doing something in that setting with some sort of fashion that had to do with their hair or their heads. We know that. They were doing something. And here's the thing. For you and I, what you wear on your head or not, 99% of the time, 
cool, oh, that's cute, who cares? It doesn't mean anything to us. But we know that Paul and the Corinthians knew together that this fashion choice that some of these women in this church were making had a huge statement, and not just for Christians, for the entire culture. The culture would see the fashion choice that they were making and go, oh, because you were saying something really big with that choice. So some people think it was the hair up or down. Other people think it was a, some sort of a cloth that would cover their heads. I tend towards that one because there are ancient statues from that time and place where notable women who had statues made of them had head coverings on. So it's part of Corinthian culture. But the, and so this church is making decisions uh, about this fashion, and the fashion is making a statement, and Paul gives this huge section of this in this letter because this fashion choice that they're making is making a statement on what they believe about marriage, about gender itself, and about Jesus. That's why it's a big deal, because this fashion choice was making a big statement. Now, what has Paul been trying to do with the Corinthians every single, every single thing, right? Hey, guys, we remember Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you, and then will you try to live that out, please? Does it matter even in things like cultural statements? Do you want to honor him and what he's done in everything all the time? That's what he's pressing him to do here, okay? We know that's pretty much the main thing in this passage. So now we want to try to find these timeless theological principles that they weren't living out well in their own culture. Is that making sense so far? And you see the big principle in verse 3. Look what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, page 958. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What does he talk about three times in one verse? Did you see that word? Head. What's he care about? Headship. Headship. So the first point is there is a beautiful thing called headship. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Again, it's language we don't usually use. You know, one, one thing that's helpful for understanding really difficult passages is looking to other passages that aren't quite as difficult to understand. How do you know, where should we look for what headship is? There's a lot of theories out there and the commentators and the scholars, but to me, the only one that made, that made sense to me, after all, when you consider linguistic things, cultural things, whatever, I'm no expert. This is the best I can do. Look at Ephesians 1.22. This is Paul's prayer for the church, and he's encouraging the church to just be confident in God's love for them and his power for them. Look what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.22. And God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet. So everything's under Jesus' feet. You like that? He's Lord, he's king, he owns it all. And then God gave him as what? Head over all things to the church. In Corinthians, very soon, Paul's gonna talk about the body of Christ. You've heard that one? Who's the head of the body of Christ? 
Jesus is our head. We're his body. So headship for a Christian, at least many times, maybe, most, maybe all the time, is a relational term for our connection with Jesus. It's a relational term from our connection with Jesus. It means this, Jesus is devoted to us. He's come for us. He gave himself up for us. He leads us, he provides us, he provides for us, he protects us, he shares his kingdom with us, and he did it all with the heart of a servant, didn't he? One of my favorite stories is when he washes his disciples' feet. Nobody wants to do that. The lowest slave doesn't want to do that. But Jesus says, hey, I'm Lord, and I'm going to do that. Does he say, oh, I'm not Lord? No, he says, I am Lord, and because I'm Lord, I'm going to wash your feet. What kind of a headship does Jesus offer us? It's compassionate. It's kind. He serves us first. He's died for us. He rose for us. Jesus is our head. It's a heart of love. I don't know about you. Do you enjoy Jesus as your head? Do you want him to be head of the church? Leader, king, prophet, priest, savior, lord, friend? Do you want him as head over your life? He takes responsibility for you. He cares about you. He's watching over you. He gives himself up for you. He's going to get you there. Um, this is really the picture of the gospel in this passage. How do you get to have the beauty of Jesus' head over your life? It's not through works, right? It's trusting in him and what he's done. That he would live a perfect life for you. He died on the cross for you in your place. He rose from the dead for you. You trust that. You believe that. He saved you. We, we use words like salvation. But we're all, when, when we say, Jesus, save me, we're saying, I need you to lead me. I need to have you as my head. You're my head. You're my king. You're my leader. You're our head as our family. Church family. Jesus is our head, and we want to honor him. That's the first principle. Isn't that part of being a Christian? Isn't that like at the heartbeat of a Christian? Can you imagine a Christian who's like, Jesus, thank you for saving me from my sins, but I don't want you to lead me or guide me or protect me. I'll just, just give me what I need, but don't be my head. We'd be like, ah, that, that's not even it. A Christian heart loves to have Christ as his, her head, our head. He's our head. Okay, the next step was to a similar but far less extent, I will repeat that, to a similar but far less an extent, a husband is the head of his wife. <clears throat> to a similar but far less extent, the husband is the head of his wife. Now, I want you to see something here because uh, the ESV has made a choice, and I want to show you what the NIV, the choice the NIV made. You, you guys familiar with that? NIV, different translations of the Bible. We're using the ESV. Look at what the NIV puts here in verse 3. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. That's the same. And then what does it say? The head of a woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Do you see a difference? <laughs> one said the head of a wife is her husband. The other one said the head of a woman is man. Okay. I don't know about you, but I think that's about as large of an interpretive difference as can possibly be. Now, in Greek, the word for man and the word for woman is the same as husband and wife, so that's confusing. And you have to pay attention to context to tell you, are they talking about people who are married, or are they talking about men and women in general? 
So what is the best contextual choice? The ESV does us a favor, I think, when it says the head of a wife is her husband. First of all, I don't think there's any biblical reason to believe that men in general are the heads of women in general. First of all, you're like, yeah, <laughs> okay. If you're a woman, you're like, no, horrid, abuses of history, stop. Even as a man, listen, I don't want to be the head of every woman. Do you realize how hard this is? Well, I'm going to talk about being a head like Jesus is the head. Please. <laughs> um, so, and right, I'll stop there. So the choice here is, okay, just like the, Christ is the head of the church, or in this case, he's focusing on the man, and the head of a wife is her husband. Now, does it say that in other scriptures? You heard that before? Look at Ephesians 5, 23 to 25. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Oh, okay. His body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So really, we almost always have to unlearn and relearn everything in this passage. Submit, really? Are you, are you really telling me this? Uh, here's my definition. It's a joyful support of another's leadership by grace. A joyful support of another's leadership by grace. We all have to do this in many contexts of our lives. And here in this text, wives, you want to treat your husbands like this. And then head, okay? The husband is the head of the wife. Listen, if, if part of you in your heart as a woman says, I don't want to submit to a husband, I got to tell you, if you understand really what I think the Bible says about headship, no man really wants to be a head either, okay? Because the Bible is asking us to do something that really in our flesh is impossible. I don't even think if you're not Christians, you, you can't even try this. You shouldn't try this. But the Bible does something here that's so unique and so special in that it says, hey, Christian marriages, when you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we want you to act something out. Fellas, even though you don't deserve this, you're not worthy of this, you play the role of Jesus and you be ahead. And Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up. So you walk the cross, you wear the cross, you wash the feet, to love, to lead, to guide, to protect as best you can who you are in your life. You, you love that lady like this. You try to be a little mini picture of Jesus. And ladies, not saying he's smarter than you, not saying he's better than you, not saying any of that mess. We're saying you get to, you get to act out a certain picture. And by grace, because he's going to mess up all the time, but by grace through faith, you're going to joyfully support that leadership because in the grace of God, we want to put on a show that can't be seen anywhere else. We want a picture of the gospel in these marriages. And that's headship. And the response to headship. Because it's, we're trying to get the, the heart of the gospel in our relationships with one another. And what's amazing for all of us, whatever role you're in, is Jesus did it first. Um, Christ is the head of man, or the husband, as we're interpreting it. Husband is the head of the wife. And then what did it say about Jesus? Do you remember? Verse 3, 11, 3. The head of Christ 
is God. So, first thing, if you think it's demeaning to have a head and to support that head's leadership, guess who else you're demeaning? Jesus. How does he respond to his father saying, hey, I want you to go die for your people? Yes, Father. I mean, Jesus will later say, John 14, 31, I do as the Father commanded me so the world may know I love him. That's just such a heart. So you see in Jesus both pictures. Does Jesus honor his head, his Father? Yeah, by the way, theological question, um, is Jesus subordinate in value to the Father? Is he less God than the Father? No, that's huge. That would be a heresy to say that. He's fully God, equally deserving of glory in every way, and yet in love, because the Father and the Son, they love one another in such an amazing, eternal way. The Father, as the head, has sent the Son into the world, and the Son loves to honor his Father and says, yes, I'll do it. And so there's Jesus, the picture for all of us, who's the most submissive to ever walk the planet. Jesus Christ, the King. And yet, who's the greatest head, the greatest leader, the greatest protector, provider, savior ever? Jesus. And we get to honor him in how we live. Isn't that the principle of this passage? You have a head. It's the Lord Jesus. It's beautiful who he is and what he does for you. Honor your head. To give you a little flavor later, use your head to honor your head. That's what Paul's saying. Okay? You want to honor your head. So now look at verse 4. Let's get con- more confused. <clears throat> Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Okay. Okay. Why? What? Why? Again, prophesying here is just you're in a little church setting and you're sharing God's word with one another. That's all it means here, I think. So you got this bro and he's gonna share God's word with us. We're having a, we're having a Bible study at our house. He's gonna, he's gonna share what he thinks. And if he does it with his head covered, he dishonors his head. And what, right? Here's what's going on. There's good evidence to think, the Greek here is, is sounds it's, it's actually having down from the head, the man who having down from the head. And it probably means, remember, one of the major problems with the city of Corinth and the church in Corinth was idolatry. They had brought in a lot of idolatrous practices with how they did their Christianity. There's temples to idols all over the place. And so having down from the head, a man with his head covered, is probably a practice that men would do in worship to these idols, And so he's saying, and I think this is really just an example in the argument, imagine some bro is sharing with you what he learned from God's word, and he's got a t-shirt on that says, Baal is the best, okay? Imagine he's sharing God's word, and he's wearing like a, a, I love Zeus baseball hat. That's ridiculous to us, but that's what it would be like. There'd be some sort of sign that he loves idols, while he's talking about Jesus. And Paul said that, was, that would dishonor his head, because that's where he's wearing it, and his head, physical head, metaphorical head. That's a, play in this, that's a play in this passage. 
So he would dishonor his, himself by saying, hey, I love Jesus and I worship idols. And how does he make Jesus look at the Bible study? And some new visitor comes in and they're like, why are you giving props to, to Zeus? Why are you talking about Jesus? It dishonors Jesus. You'd never want to do that. You'd want to honor your head with your head. Okay? And for the women, it's the same thing. If you look at verses five to six, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. What? Okay, well again, what is she doing? She's praying, she's sharing God's word, full participant in the worship there. But Paul here says, if you don't cover your head for them in their context, you might as well shave your head. Why does he say that? Well, again, this is one of those things where you get lost in the murky waters of culture. But probably a shaved head meant you're a practicing adulterer or something like that. So you would never want to intentionally do that because it's a shame. And this is an honor-shame culture. Are you familiar with those at all? America is so not it, it's hard to even imagine but there are honor-shame cultures where you represent your family all the time and you can shame or embarrass them with how you live. And so if you had intentionally, Paul is saying, again, it's an example. Boy, you wouldn't want to have your head shaved. If you, if, you, if you have your head uncovered, it's almost saying the same thing. That's what Paul's saying. Wouldn't it be saying the same thing? And here's the cultural play, okay? And again, this isn't Christian culture. This is Corinthian culture of the time. Your head covered meant you were innocent, untouchable, and part of a community that protected you. And so if you intentionally took that off as a woman in Corinthian culture, it meant you denied that. You denied your husband, your family, your father, and you bring great shame on them. So it would be really hard for us to make a correlation, right? Because we don't have things that say these kind of things culturally in what we wear anymore. But it would be sort of like this. A lady gets dressed up looking for like a one-night stand. It's, it's sloppy. It's ugly. She, she gets up to share God's word. She takes her wedding ring and throws it into the corner. And she looks like this. And everybody in the room's like. And then she starts sharing God's word. And how does her husband feel? She would dishonor her head, and her head, Jesus, in the way that she's dishonoring her head because of the cultural practice of the day on what you wore as a woman. Does that make sense? And so these ladies, again, this church is a hot mess. They're just crazy. They're doing all this crazy stuff. And Paul says, you're making these massive cultural statements about marriage and Jesus in your worship services, and it's denying what you say you believe. So Paul is actually telling them, hey, within your culture, you need to be sensitive to what your culture thinks and feels and honor Jesus and honor marriage in that cultural setting. That's what he's saying. The question is, why are the ladies doing this? We don't really know. I think there's a decent guess, because remember verse 10, which is our favorite verse it's because of the angels, <laughs> right? First Corinthians eleven ten. This is why a wife ought to have the symbol of authority. I'll get to that symbol of authority later. Because of the angels. 
here's a good guess, okay? Look at, look at these two verses on angels. Matthew twenty two thirty. Jesus said, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Um, you wouldn't want to take that too far, but we, we don't get married in, in heaven, right? Here, here's a big buzzword for you, over-realized eschatology. That means you take things from the end that, have, that will happen one day and apply them too much right now. And an example of this is I know some people who think if you're a Christian, you should never be sick again. Because Jesus died for our sins to take away all our sicknesses. Now, is Jesus gonna take away all your sicknesses? Yes, when? The end. Now? No. Over-realizes, hey, the stuff of the end, now! And so the Corinthians, as we've been walking through this book, they're messing up all their theology. It's a guess that they were taking this over-realized eschatology and saying, now in Christ, there's not really such thing as man or woman or marriage anymore. And so when Paul drops on them, no, not that, because of the angels, look at the other verse, 1 Peter 1, 12. Peter there is talking about the glories of our salvation in Jesus. And then he says this crazy thing, angels long to look into these things. Angels, powerful, amazing beings, they appear to us, we get scared, we fall on our faces. And Peter says angels are actually so curious and so interested in how Jesus is saving us. And so maybe the flip is, the Corinthian people are saying, hey, we'll be like the angels, no more gender, no more marriage. And Paul actually says, no, the angels are really curious about how you're living your salvation in your gender, in your marriages. That's why you need to honor Jesus and honor marriage. Because, heck, even the angels are watching. It's my best guess at that. But what's the first point? There is headship. And it's beautiful, right? We, want, we love Jesus as our head, and we want to honor our head. And, and in, we want to use our head, which for us gets at how are you living your life? To honor our head, we want to honor Jesus most of all, and we want to honor marriage and headship that's in marriage in how we live. That's the first principle. The second principle to see is there's a beautiful thing called gender, beautiful thing called gender. Look at verses 7 to 11. For a man ought, ought not to cover his head. He's the image and glory of God. Woman's the glory of man. For man was not made from woman. Woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman from man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man from woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. What does that mean? Well, I think Genesis is obviously in Paul's mind. We'll remember Genesis 1.27. What did God say in Genesis 1.27? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, what? Male and female, he created them. So which one is in God's image, male or female? Yes. In fact, really, it's male and female that are in his image. We are in his image. You can't do it right all by yourself, and I mean that in every way possible. Huge communities, churches, marriages too. We are in God's image, right? Could any one person or one gender encompass that? No, of course not. And so you think of that phrase, hey, woman was made for man, and we're all like, ah, throw the tomatoes. And the men are like, ha ha, you were made for me. Wait a second, why did God make Eve for Adam? 
You remember? God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Okay, the woman wasn't made for man because man is all hot stuff and he gets to boss her around. That's the opposite of what the text says. The woman was made for man because man, it's the only thing in a sinless creation that wasn't good. He's alone. He needs help. And she's perfect for that. Suitable for that. And so what we see here, don't you see Paul working hard to say, hey, look, we're equal in value. We're different in shape. And that's because we're made to be interdependent. Interdependent. We're equal in value. We're different in shape because we're made to need one another. We're made, we're made to work together. Uh, every commentator is like, Paul is emphasizing, hey, look, everything I said before is not demeaning women. I'm, I'm showing you the beauty of the variety in gender, that there is male, there is female, and they fit well together. It's not about pride of place. Uh, you know, it's interesting, after Adam and Eve sin, and they're getting uh, the curse for that choice, you remember Genesis 3.16? Part of the results of sin um, God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And I think in context, desire means you're gonna wanna rule him and said he's gonna dominate. But isn't, isn't that the sorrow of sin, these gender wars? The sorrow of sin. What has happened to women for eons and eons and ages and ages? Demeaned, abused, horribly treated. It's a huge scar on the face of world history. And yet you still have people like, uh, today's world, you have people like Maureen Dowd, anybody know her? She's one of my favorites. She wrote, Are Men Necessary? <laughs> I don't have this one on the overhead. A recent debate, this is what she said. So now that women don't need men to reproduce and refinance, the question is, will we keep you around? And the answer is, you know we need you in the way we need ice cream you'll be more ornamental. Everybody needs a favorite feminist, you know, for lines like that. Hey, I've been called worse, right? I like ice cream. But do you see the gender wars? Dominating, one-upping. I don't need you. I'll demean you. I'll rule over you. The gospel is supposed to undo that. And as we've seen in marriage, it doesn't just make us vanilla the same. It actually tells us to die to ourselves and for one another in unique ways, especially as seen in marriage. I don't always wanna be ahead. I'm not a good head. I don't like giving myself up all the time. It'd be easier to be lazy. And man, that poor woman to have to submit and honor my leadership, which is so poor sometimes, and for her to support that and encourage it and refine it, we don't wanna do that. It'd be easier to do something different, but to show a picture of the gospel. We humble ourselves. And remember what God does with gender. It's beautiful. Male and female are beautiful. And listen, if, if you're thinking about all these gender stereotypes that you think should be rejected, I agree with you. I don't have time to go into those. I'm not talking about stereotypes. I'm talking about the reality that God has made such a thing. It's real as male and female. And it's beautiful and it's good and we have different shapes because we're meant to team together in unique ways. And it's for his glory. 
So how do we apply it today to back up, right? We've, we're trying to see the principle as separate from the practice. You know, I was joking about Fountain of Life Fellowship head coverings, right? We're not gonna do it. We don't need to do it, why? Because that's the way they played that out in their culture, we're in a different one. That's not hard. But what are the principles? Honor your head, who's our head? Jesus, he loves us. Second thing, honor the beauty and the value of gender. Male and female in the image of God, totally equal in value, different in shape, sometimes different in role. Honor it. Well, once we get there, do you think this is a relevant passage for today? Do you think this is relevant? Schools in Charlotte, presentation to the principals and counselors recommends children are not to be referred to as boys or girls. One policy allows students to participate in extracurricular activities and overnight field trips based on their gender identity. A student who identifies as a girl is allowed to participate in an all-girl overnight trip. Hmm. It's different. Did you ever hear of the, emp- the story of the emperor with no clothes? It's one of my favorite fables, right? This is an emperor. He's real pompous, and he gets schnookered into buying these robes that are so beautiful, and they're really light, amazing. Um, and, but the problem is the inferior can't see them. <laughs> the inferior can't see them. And so the pressure's on, because if you can't see his robes, guess what that says about you? <laughs> you're stupid, or you're a bigot. And so when the emperor comes down the highway, all the people are like, beautiful robes. Except there's one little boy who hasn't been trained well enough to be politically correct, And what does he shout out at the emperor? You're naked, bro. (laughs) You you ain't got nothing on. That's our culture on gender and marriage. I'm going to give you a few ideas or, or, or a few episodes of this. The Wall Street Journal had an article in it about the transgender challenge for women's colleges. Okay? Because if you want to have a woman's college, why? I mean, almost always, right, isn't the goal to uphold women, to establish the rights of women, to give dignity to women, to give a safe place to women? What do you do when women are claiming to be men and men are claiming to be women? Uh, just a few lines from this article. Some colleges have changed their admission standards and will now consider applications from trans women people who are born men but identify as female. So far, these colleges have drawn the line at accepting trans men, people born female but identifying as male. Other women's colleges will accept applications from anyone on the gender spectrum except those who were born male and still identify as male. In other words, men. Now, I think that's hilarious that they have to tell us what that is. So he's a man and he thinks he's a man. What is that again? Oh, that's a man. Oh, okay. One president said this, because this, this reporter is asking her, how do you do this? Because, listen, if you want to establish and protect the female, what does that mean? And here's what one president said. She told this story. A young Muslim woman attending this certain college was assigned a dorm room with a roommate who was born female, but at some point, that roommate became identifying as male. The Muslim student objected on religious grounds 
telling the administration that because she accepted her roommate's male identity, she could no longer live in that room comfortably. Okay. The president said the school resolved the matter by separating the students, a result that satisfied both parties. But she said, and here's the kicker, students can't indicate in advance their preferences regarding a roommate's gender identity because that would be discriminatory. So ladies, if you don't want a room with a man, you're a bigot. Because a man can be a woman, and a woman can be a man, and that's why we protect women, because we have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> it's a naked emperor right there. And it's, look, as a Christian, obviously I believe things about gender and marriage, but this is not just from Christians. Some of the biggest criti- critics of this transgendered movement are feminists. Feminists. Kathleen Sloan is a, a feminist speaker. This is what she's written. I think I have an overhead for this one. To women's rights advocates and feminist leaders like me, laws that include gender identity raise a number of red flags for their unintended consequences for women. The problem is that gender is detached from the biological differences between males and females, and consequently male supremacy and the oppression of women is obscured and ultimately erased. How can we fight for women and their rights if a man can buy it like he gets something on Amazon? What is this thing we're treasuring if it has no meaning any longer? It's just an episode from Culture of Our Naked Gender. I want to include this quote from this lady, Robin Morgan. Did I say naked gender? gender? That's funny. Naked emperor. Robin Morgan said this, this is from several years ago, but I think you feel a lot, you hear the pain from somebody who cares about feminism dealing with this new gender confusion. Robin Morgan said, I will not call a male she. 32 years of suffering in this androcentric society and of surviving have earned me the title woman. One walked down the street by a male transvestite, And then he dares, he dares to think he understands our pain, know in our mother's names and in our own, we must not call him sister. You see what's happening? She cares about women, femininity, however she would define that, but it is a thing for her. It's real. And now our culture says, not really real, make it up as you go, okay? That's an emperor with no clothes on. But here's the thing for us as Christians. The emperor is after us to praise his flowing robes. He's after us. Do you know the Obama's solicitor general told the Supreme Court during that big Supreme Court decision that churches which oppose same-sex marriage should lose their tax exemptions. Which means if you hold the religious view that marriage really is between a man and a woman, and your church holds that view. No more tax exemptions for you. And some, some thinkers have written, this would be devastating, especially for Christian schools. And this is an agenda that's out there. I don't know if you heard about the California bill, SB 1146. It just got pulled, which was a huge victory. But in the LA Times, the people who wrote it up said, we're just rethinking, we're coming back with something else. 
This is what the bill would have done. It would have required private Christian universities to comply with certain provisions so that if they accept even a single student who receives state financial assistance, which is all of them, this is what they'd have to do. They would have to open single-sex dorms to transgender students, and it would mean they would have to require schools to acknowledge and respect same-sex marriages to the same extent that they respect traditional marriages. And this, meant, this would mean that schools could draw no distinction between same-sex behavior, heterosexual behavior, in their conduct policies. So how many of you, you went to a Christian university or you sent your kid to a Christian school? There's a Christian conduct policy, which a lot of times it's just generalities on, we want to obey what the Bible says for our community. That will not be allowed with a bill like this. You, you, would, you would be open to lawsuits out the wazoo that would make schools like this untenable to have. So you would have to say, even though we're a Christian university, we have to let some, somebody who claims one gender, uh, a, a boy who claims to be a girl, we'd have to let them into our girls' dorm room at our Christian university or be sued beyond belief, okay? This depresses me greatly. I don't know about you. It depresses me greatly. But the emperor of our culture who's naked and has no idea about gender and its beauty is gonna say, hey, sing for my robes. And we just went through a text on head coverings. We're not gonna wear head coverings unless it's sunny outside, I wear a hat, okay? But the principle here is what? Honor your head. Who's your head? Jesus. That's my head. He saves me, he loves me. And honor what he's made. What has he made? He has made something like gender. And he's made something like marriage. Listen, do I want to love and serve and bless and be kind to people who disagree with me on this? You know, disclaimer, right? Do we want to be angry, judgmental Christians? No, we don't. We want to be gracious, right, all the time. Turn the other cheek. We want to be winsome examples of the love of Jesus. But when it comes to us, and when the emperor says, praise my flowing robes, who will you honor? Because there is going to be a cost on this issue. And I hope when he tells me to sing, I'll say what Paul said in verse 16. We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I'm going to look at him and say, you're naked. <laughs> and let's honor our head, okay? Honor our head, because, man, he has loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we just love you. We love what you've made. We confess our difficulties, Lord, and know what it means to love people and know what it means to love your word. And then just being, being good husbands to our wives and good wives to our husbands and in honoring you to one another. So we just pray, God, that we'd be filled with amazing, uh, your amazing love for us. Jesus, we love having you as our head, our leader, our savior, our protector. Help us honor you in everything we do. Honor what you've made so that this world that just doesn't get it can see in us and in the grace you've given us the beauty of what you've made. And it would be a great example of your goodness, of your kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.